Well, she sneaks around the world from Vienna to Carolina. She's a sticky fingered filcher from Berlin down to Belize. Take you for a ride on a slow boat to China. Tell me where in the world is Carmen San Diego. everybody welcome to another episode of classic gaming brothers i'm seth and i'm zach and we are the classic gaming brothers that's right we are the the classic Classic gaming Gaming brothers Brothers. that's That's right right. yeah so i'm excited about this episode it's yeah me too about one of my favorite uh memories of life and we're uh back in the saddle a little bit we're getting close to episode 150 Yes, we gotta we gotta prep for that one. That's gonna be a special episode. Wait, so what, this is episode. What episode is even? Which episode is this? Isn't it one forty seven? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're you might be thinking at home, what's special about ten sixteen? Well, it's the one hundred and fiftieth episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. So we're going to um, write to the president and ask to make it a Classic Gaming Brother holiday. Do you think Joe Biden will come on the podcast? No, but he maybe he'll make it a federal holiday. Mm. On that day, you'll be allowed to listen to our episodes and celebrate our 150th episode. And for for all you people who that work during the week, you'll have the day off. That's right. <laughs> that's right because it's a sunday so yeah so that's gonna be a fun episode and this episode will also be fun but we should probably talk about what we've been playing recently so zach what have you been playing seth recently i've been diving back into the world of bootleg games but i wanted to also play a little harry potter so i've been playing a game that i picked up recently as a, as a physical copy and that's a game called harry potter 3 sometimes it's called harry potter 2 other times it's called Harry Potter and the Mystical Halo. It's a 2002 Game Boy Color game developed by Vast Fame, who we've talked about very briefly when Seth played Zook Hero Z, which was a Vast Fame platformer. This is a shmup, not a platformer. And in the game, you are playing as Harry Potter, as the name would imply. Uh, You fly around on your broom and you cast spells at various enemies. To do this, you have to collect spell books. You can actually level up your spells by collecting spell books of the same symbol, so there's a fire spellbook, a lightning spellbook, and like a energy ball spellbook. And the more of those type of spellbooks you collect, the more stronger your attack becomes. So if you have like two fire, then the fireball is a little bigger. If you have three, it sends like three fireballs out at once sort of deal. However, if you pick up the wrong type of spellbook, maybe you don't want lightning and you pick it up, you'll be swapped to the lightning power. So you'd have to start from scratch if you wanted to rebuild like your fire ability. It's actually a really interesting game and I really like that mechanic and it's overall plays really fine. It's it's not a like hack or anything. It's a game built totally from the ground up by Vast Fame, um, though they later did reuse the same engine for a different game that had nothing to do with Harry Potter. It was instead based off of Journey to the West, which is a fantasy uh, story uh, from China. Now, um, the, the game also has really good music uh, because all of the music is stolen from a game called Parodius, which was on the Game Boy. So uh, it has good music because they just took it from someone. <laughs> but you know what? 
better than having bad music, so I, I can't fault them. But yeah, it's it's a fun game. It is available to be played via emulation if you can find the ROM. It has been dumped for a while now. It's not like an elusive game, but it's cool to have a physical copy that I can play on my Game Boy. Um, and it's definitely one of those bootlegs that I'd recommend trying out. Like Zookiro, it's a lot more fun than I think it looks, and I personally had a good time with it. It is hard, though. I mean, it's a shmup, so if you think regular shmups can be hard, this one is equally as difficult. So, Seth, what about you? What have you been playing? Uh, so, I've been playing a game called Industria, which was developed by Bleak Mill and published by Head Up. I got it in my Humble Bundle for the month of September. Industrial was released back in 2021, and it is a first-person shooter where it takes place in, like, 1989 in East Berlin, which is, uh, you know, when they split Germany in half. There was East and West Berlin. And it takes place right before the end of the Cold War. You have to go find your coworker who I'm going to say is stuck. So the game says that you the coworker gets stuck in a parallel dimension. I'm going to say that they're stuck in a 1989's computer, including like the reel-to-reel type <laughs> data. And it's like an old school reboot. But the game is a first-person shooter and plays similar to like i got a lot of half-life 2 vibes while playing the game it takes place where you have to do some minor puzzling like half-life 2 had you do there are like these robot enemies that are kind of similar to kind of like the half-life 2 like aesthetic and it's a pretty fun game i've been in i've been enjoying it definitely feels like early 2000s for the styling of the game so it's actually pretty nostalgic even though the game came out in 2021 uh it plays in the unreal 5 engine and i played about an hour of it and i'll probably pick it up again uh it was pretty fun i enjoyed it that was industria and it was a pretty cool game and for free who could beat that i think at msrp is a 20 dollars 19.99 i don't know if i would pay 20 dollars for the game um i haven't gotten that far to maybe i'm so far i'm liking it so maybe i would but for free that's even better yeah i was gonna say maybe you would maybe you wouldn't but it doesn't matter because you got it for free that's right uh well today we we're talking about a company and a game. Well, a series of games. So people might remember, when we did our Yars Revenge episode, Seth had given me for our retro rewind, where in time is Carmen Sandiego? And we got to talking about Carmen Sandiego, and I think we reminisced a bit about Carmen Sandiego during that time. And at one point, Seth mentioned, oh, we should do an episode on Broderbund. And I said, we should do an episode on Broderbund. Well, everyone, this is the episode on Broderbund. We've mentioned Broderbund before when we talked about Mist and Oregon Trail because they were involved in both of those. Yes, they were. But Broderbund published Mist, right? Yes, they published Mist and they originally published Oregon Trail. Yeah, uh, and then Mech, obviously, the Michigan education computing consortium was the developers of oregon trail and scion uh studios was uh the developers for mist broderbund did develop their own games though and we will talk about one of the games that they developed later on in the episode after we talk a little bit about our memories of broderbund games and the history of of broderbund so uh zach what do you remember for broderbund games well so i mostly remember mist of course uh we've already talked about mist at length but i also remember having a lot of just general software by broderbund not necessarily 
necessarily games. Um, so I remember things like we had some like I think it was some Atlas program that was I think developed by Bruderbund uh, or published by them. But also what I remember is having a copy of Mavis Beacon teaches typing, and I th- remember we had some of, if not a one of, the Living Book series of educational software. And I know for a fact we had some Reader Rabbit titles. I think they were the later Reader Rabbit titles that were published kind of in Broderbund's later stage, but I can't actually say whether or not I played them, but those are my memories. Uh, what about you, Seth? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I grew up with a lot of the Broderbund uh, games that were either um, developed by them or published by them. Some games, they actually also worked on, like, Prince of Persia, which we talked about. And I think we talked about Broderbund with Prince of Persia as well in our Prince of Persia episode. They had a game publishing division, which was called the Red Orb Entertainment. And that was the division that would go on to publish a number of the games that we've already talked about they also did a lot of educational games for my childhood uh because they did the carmen san diego series and i have a lot of good memories with the carmen san diego series uh it was one of those games it was really everywhere when i was growing up um maybe not so much for zach but for for sure for me carmen san diego had like a game show that i watched pretty regularly on uh pbs there was because that's what we watched as i was a child was the the pbs and there was also a number of video games and i believe we at least had one copy of one of the carmen san diego's and then i think i played a couple other copies while in school in the computer lab because that was one of the kind of computer games that were allowed to be played. It was like that and Oregon Trail, which were great games to play because they were actually fun and they weren't just kind of like a like a forcing education on you. I feel like education games were kind of split where some made you know that you were doing education and others were kind of like a game that taught you education at the same time. And I would say it's almost like a really gray line when it comes to games that are teaching you education because there are games out there that I learned a lot of history and knowledge from that aren't really traditional like education games. I played a lot of the city building games by Impressions and the Civilization games by Sid Meier's. And those games have a lot of education tucked into, like, the gameplay itself. Like, you learn a lot of history when you play those games. And they're, it's accurate history. And Carpet San Diego, I would say, is, like, a little more education step forward. But it's it's more aligned to, like, a trail game, Oregon Trail, Yukon Trail, where you're really trying to, ex- like, accomplish an objective that is fun versus just playing the game to learn something i feel like eco quest was probably at the tail end of those type of games like eco quest is kind of definitely pushing on the education portion of it but i feel like it's still fun enough that it's still like not fully across the line of something like math blasters like there's no arguing like math blasters is like those type of games where it's just 
spoon feeding you education, right? And I think at the end of the day, as a child, I, I think I preferred games that were fun. If I had to play a math game, I guess I would play Math Blasters. But if I had to choose between Math Blasters and Oregon Trail or Carmen San Diego, I'm going to choose Carmen San Diego. And yeah, so that's kind of like my memories of Carmen San Diego and my memories of Broderbun games. Now, to talk about Broderbun, Broderbun got their start back in 1980 when they were founded by two brothers, what? Doug and Gary Carlston. Doug originally had a background in law and worked as a lawyer. Gary worked in a variety of jobs, including teaching Swedish. The brothers at the time were working on a video game called Galactic Empire, and they needed a company to help market the game. Galactic Empire was a strategy game that I'm pretty sure I've played that was developed initially for the TRS-80 by Doug Carlson, who wrote the game. Doug managed to get the game published by Adventure International, and after after it started to sell well, Gary and uh, Gary and Doug were like, "Hey, we should just do this full time." And they founded Broderbund, and their sister Kathy would join the company in 1981. Now, the name Broderbund is actually not a real word; it is a loose translation of Band of Brothers, and it's been mixed in of like Danish, Dutch, German, and Swedish. The name is also close to the Afrikaans word Broderbond, which means an association of brothers. However, this was also the name of an ethno-nationalist Afrikaner organization. So the brothers obviously didn't want to be associated with them, hence the other reason for the name being spelled differently. Broderbun also has a weird, it's not an umlaut, it's like the cross through O. Yeah, it's called a slashed O. And that's really to just play off the Dano-Norwegian alphabet. Also, may also be because during that time, zeros were slashed through in personal computers and mainframes that they were dealing with in the day so adding the slash o makes it look more like they were a tech company versus like uh, a regular old distribution company or whatever now in 1982 broderbund began working on arcade games uh, arcade games were a hot ticket and they were able to score some early investments into the company in 1983 they began planning going into a different direction home utility software and along with this we're looking into the edutainment business. This proved to be actually a lucrative market for them and ultimately a great decision. By 1984, the company was one of the largest software companies in the world with an estimated $13 million in sales. Deals that they had with companies like the Jim Henson Company, along with some incredibly popular software like the Prince Shop, helped them really get their name on the map. So when you walked into the store and you saw an educational product, it was probably a Broderbund product. Product. After the release of the print shop, which was a tool primarily used for making signs and cards, Broderbund began working with Unison World, and they were doing this to develop an MS-DOS version of the print shop. They couldn't come up with a compromise on the contract, so it didn't go through. However, Unison World decided to just go and create MS-DOS print shop and release it under their name, pretty much stealing the design of print shop but for DOS. Broderbund sued them, and the lawsuit helped establish the legal precedent of look and feel for software in terms of copyright. Now, Broderbund, during all of this, developing software, getting into lawsuits, they were still publishing video games. 
Right. Uh, during the 1980s, they were releasing titles like Star Blazer, Load Runner, and Karateka. One of these games, which came out in 1985, was a little title called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Released for the Apple II, Commodore 64, Amstrad CPC, Apple II GS, Amiga, Atari ST, DOS, and pretty much every computer uh, and some of the home consoles at the time. But... Let's put a pin in that, because we're going to get back to Carmen Sandiego in just a moment. Now, in the 1990s, Broderbund was doing very well. They they had about 25% of the share of the education market. Their names were so tied to education that later in the 90s, they would create their Red Orb Entertainment publishing division so that they could disassociate themselves with software and people could actually identify if it was edutainment or if it was uh like i don't know i was i'm gonna say like a fun video game <laughs> <But they> could, <laughs> yeah right uh they had that early 25 percent share of the education market largely due to the print shop and carmen san diego and they which made up an estimated 33 and 26 percent of total revenue respectively for the company so yeah they were primarily a print shop carmen san diego house the company in 1991 would go public with the nasdaq symbol of brod broderbund would then go on to acquire a company called pc globe in 1992 who produced an atlas for ms dos and windows after this they attempted to purchase the learning company however they were outbid by a company called softkey who purchased the wordy company for around 606 million dollars in cash and then in 1998 softkey purchased them too they they acquired a 420 million dollars in broderbund stock uh softkey would end up taking controlling shares of broderbund and they would end up calling the shots they would go on to terminate about 500 employees of broderbund in the same year and uh which those 500 employees made up about 40 percent of the entire workforce for broderbund doug carlson would go on to say that softkey tried to use a previous acquisition, uh, Mindscape Printmaster, to weaken Broderbund's stronghold, and they actually would offer a rebate that was worth more than the product itself to take share away from Broderbund before going on and purchasing them. So they were like, Softkey was like hard on for Broderbund yeah. for a long time. I think when Broderbund's shares first went public, they're about 80 bucks a share and then immediately declined, like immediately dipped because of Softkey's intervention, you could almost say, right. in trying to manipulate the, it essentially try to manipulate the market by offering that rebate. Yeah. To also maybe weaken Broderbund's stock. To yeah. make it an easier purchase. Broderbund as a company would be eventually sold to Mattel in 1999 from Softkey. And Mattel would go on to buy them for $3.6 billion in 1999, which is a lot of money. Mattel's investors didn't actually think that this was a good idea. And in fact, they thought it was so bad, they fired the CEO in charge of the deal. In 2000, Mattel would go on to sell their game division along with all of their assets, including Broderbun, which the Gores Group would acquire. Broderbun and the learning company assets from Mattel. Broderbun products would continue to be sold and through the German branch of the learning company. And they published games under two labels, Broderbun, and the learning company, which were defined by blue and red logos. In 2001, the Gores Group would go on to sell the learning company to Ubisoft, which is why some of the later missed games were published by Ubisoft. As of 2017, Broderbund Software, like the print shop, calendar creator, 
and its ClickArk brand are offered by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Now all this is pretty boring, so let's talk about something cool, some cool edutainment. Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Came out in 1985. It's an educational strategy game. In the game, you must stop the leader of the criminal organization Vile, Carmen Sandiego. You work for a company called Acme Detective Agency, and to stop San Diego, you have to use your knowledge of geography as every good detective does to stop criminal enterprises. You interview witnesses, investigate clues, and gather evidence in order to stop Carmen Sandiego and her evil industry. Now, the original concept for Carmen Sandiego was born out of an idea by a Broderbund programmer named Dane Bigham. Bigham was playing Colossal Cave Adventure, and he noticed that, I assume himself, along with other players, would often struggle with using the correct synonyms for commands, and he wanted to design a graphical adventure similar to Colossal Cave that would be able to be played by children with a menu-driven command line. During the game's development, Gary Carlston suggested that the project could go from an adventure game to a geography game. Bigham didn't like this idea, but he was mostly focused on developing the interface, so we just kind of went along with it. The story for the game was passed off to David Siefkin, who was directed to use the World Almanac as a reference, which was to be shipped with copies of the game. In the original script that Siefkin wrote, the game would select a random villain and a stolen treasure. The player would then start at a random city with a clue of where to go next. The right answer would give the player another clue to the next location until the villain is caught. This ultimately became how the game would play, with additional elements such as interviewing witnesses and investigating locations being added. One of the villains that Sifkin created was named Carmen Sandiego, whose name was derived from the singer Carmen Miranda in the city of San Diego. I also like that Carmen would end up leading Vile, which stands for the Villains International League of Evil. And the good people work for Acme, or the agency to classify and monitor evildoers. Now, the name, Carmen Sandiego, became a favorite with the team. Carlston liked the name as well, and thought it could potentially help young women connect with the game and the characters. The title itself, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, was mostly picked because it told the players exactly what they had to do. Find Carmen Sandiego somewhere in the world. The game eventually would release in April of 1985. Interestingly enough, there are a lot of versions of Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. The same year as the first game, a special version was released for Prodigy Interactive Online Services, which was offered by IBM and Sears. This version was specifically made for Prodigy with new adventures releasing every week. That sounds great, and it sounds like the world that we should have gotten, except we got paid DLC, which is not the world that we were living in. Is Where in the World Carmen Sandiego the progenitor of the Telltale franchise? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, season passes. In uh, in 1992, a new version of the game was made, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego Deluxe. This is a separate game that is different from the original game, but it also works as a remake of the original 1985 title. So you have to also understand, by 1992, a lot of Carmen Sandiego 
Diego games have come out already. And they're usually framed wherein the blank is Carmen Sandiego. So when you release where in the world is Carmen Sandiego question mark again and putting the deluxe there, people are still going to be confused. But it does. it is a remake. It is also a separate game. The deluxe version adds digitized photos from National Geographic, over 3,000 different clues, music, 20 new villains, 60 new countries, and 16 maps. So it is truly a deluxe game. It also came out on CD-ROM, unlike the previous games that came out on various different physical mediums that weren't CD-ROMs, like three and a half inch floppies, three and a quarter, or five and a quarter inch floppies, and whatever you stuck into your Commodore. (laughs) The Where in the World was also released on like SNES, and I believe the Sega Genesis as well. Mm -hmm. So a CD-ROM version in 92 allowed more spoken dialogue by some of the characters, and the information still generally appears as speech bubbles. However, the introduction of spoken dialogue was a pretty big deal. This version, the deluxe version, would then get re-released again, but they would just take off the deluxe suffix. So they would then release Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? question mark in 1995. This version would have slight changes to the visuals, which would improve them, as well as adding a video and audio component to the game itself. To make matters more confusing, in 1996, under the name Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? another video game released. Though this one is also referred to by the fans as version 3.0, likely just to avoid confusion. This version, the 1996 Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, was released to coincide with the ending of the PBS game show of the same name. It featured quick-time videos of actress Lynn Thigpen, who played the chief. This version would also be the last to use the classic formula. A deluxe edition of the 1996 version was released in 1998 with added speech that welcomes players to each country. It also added something called the Acme Global Language Linkup, which quiz players on their local language. Players would also be given a spy watch. Another game called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego was released in France for DS and Windows. It was a point-and-click adventure, so it's not really kind of the same, but has the same name. In America, for some reason, it's called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego 3 new Carmen Adventures, which I have to say is wrong. It should be Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego 4, because Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego 3 was the 1996 version. (laughs) No, it should just be Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, question mark. Fair enough. Now, a Facebook version of the game, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, did come out in 2011, and it actually brought back the classic formula that was last used in version 3.0. Also, we can't talk about Carmen Sandiego and not talk about Where in Hell is Carmen Santiago. This game was developed in 1990. It was created by St. John M. Morrison, who had actually never played any of the Carmen Sandiego games. Instead, he saw them in magazines and was like, yeah, that looks fun. So he made his own. In this game, uh, you play as a person trying to track down the world-renowned Carmen Santiago, who is a a world-renowned thief. Who's definitely not Carmen Sandiego. And you have to track her down, not in the world, not in time, but in hell, using the knowledge of Canticle 1 of Dante's divine comedy, Inferno. And needless to say, Brother Bun's not a big fan of this one. They don't believe it's canon. I, however, do. 
Now, how did Carmen Sandiego do? Well, initially when the game launched in 1985 in August, it actually performed relatively poorly. Rotorbun's marketing division hated Carmen Sandiego. Actually, a number of people at Rotorbun hated Carmen Sandiego. One of the developers, Dane Bigham, hated it. They wouldn't allow him to work on any other things while he was working at Carmen Sandiego. He wanted to be doing action games. They said no. He was surprised when he left and came back to the success of Carmen Sandiego. However, when it initially was launched, the marketing department of Broderbund also hated Carmen Sandiego. First, the name of the game. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? It's not a short name, and it actually had to fit on a box, and it was tough to get it on a box, and it still, to this day, kind of looks a little silly because the name just goes on forever. Also, the game came with a world almanac. However, game boxes back in 1985 were kind of flimsy, and the heavy almanacs uh, would actually cause the original boxes to fall apart. So the marketing company, the marketing department of Broderbun is like, this game's got this massive name and looks stupid, and they're falling apart as we ship them. However, they didn't pull it from the shelf, and they left it there. And it didn't sell well for about a year. It sold, eh. Then, after a year... <laughs> started selling about a thousand units a month then 2500 units a month then 5000 units a month then 10000 units a month the market has gotten the market has achieved carmen san diego fever and it took off for Broderbun. It would go on to be one of the best-selling games for the company. By 1987, two years after its release, it was Broderbun's third best-selling game for the Commodore. And in April of 1989, it was four years after its release, it was awarded Diamond Certification from Software Publishers Associations for exceeding 500,000 units shipped on the PC, making it one of the two best-selling computer games in the U.S. for that month for uh, April of 1989 along with the video game Karate Champ. At the end of 1989 it had hit 800,000 units sold. Uh, by 1991 it had 2 million copies sold and by 1995 10 years after it launched it had sold over 4 million units. And now, as you know, by 1995, there was also a bunch of other versions of it out. <laughs> However, the magazine Computers and Education wrote that Carmen Sandiego was by far the best-selling education software in North America. And it's probably because Broderbund didn't really consider it educational software. The educational games that were released back in the time when they released Carmen Sandiego, kind of lame. They had short animations and questions that you had to type in the right answer or would get flagged wrong and you just have to loop over that over and over again. Not really fun. However, one of the Broderbun employees, uh, Gene Portwood, wanted their games to be fun. And if people learned something from them while playing it, that's also good. He, Gene would always say, kids were short not stupid and you should just teach them like adults and that led to their success in the educational game market such as games such as Carmen Sandiego. I think that holds true when you revisit titles like Carmen Sandiego. When I was replaying it yes it's an edutainment game but at the same time I think it part of its charm is that you can still play it as an adult and still be challenged by it as well as still enjoy it and I think that holds true. The legacy of Carmen Sandiego. Carmen Sandiego by Broderbund may have been done in design designed around the idea of using an almanac, but it created a late 80s through 1990s monster. They would go on to release 
10 additional Carmen Sandiego games, not counting re-releases, with titles such as Where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego? Where in Europe? Where in time? Where in space? And how can we ever forget Where in North Dakota? Some of these games were also re-released. Now, Carmen would go on to get associated with other learning styles of games beyond geography, such as word and math games, or in where in time's case, history. The learning company would go on to release 15 games of their own, including one released just in 2020 for Netflix called Carmen Sandiego to Steal or Not to Steal. I asked myself the same question. Beyond official and unofficial video games, there were four television shows, two game shows, Where in the World and Where in Time, two animated shows, Where on Earth, in a new series just called Carmen Sandiego, released on Netflix from 2019 to 2021. There was also a series of books, comic books, seven different board games and card games, and a planetarium movie. Uh, so be that it is may, Carmen Sandiego is well entrant into our zeitgeist. That's it. That's Carmen Sandiego. Where in the world? Oh, let's not also forget, we, we can't talk about Carmen Sandiego without mentioning Rockapella, which is a acapella group that sings the Carmen Sandiego theme song for the game shows. However, they were an acapella group before they sang the Carmen Sandiego theme song, and they are still an active acapella group. I believe every member has changed over, but they still perform today, and they still sing Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. In fact, one of the prizes, I was watching an episode of Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, the television show, because that's what I like to do. I like to watch old television shows that have outdated geography. And I was watching the uh, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. And um, one of the prizes that you could win as a consolation prize for not catching Carmen, but catching the other thief of the week. And that one, this one was like, I think it was like Purdy Patty or something like that. Was the, the, the thief's name was a CD player, including three CDs all by Rockapella. <laughs> That's awesome. With the first one being the Carmen Sandiego with the Carmen Sandiego theme song on it to remind you every day that you listen to it that you lost. Oh, I love that. Another fun thing about the PBS show, because I love Carmen Sandiego facts, the PBS show had strict recording times and they also had to do it in a certain budget. They were allowed to continue recording episodes of Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego as long as they continued to keep the budget under a certain dollar threshold because it was PBS. Right. And as soon as they exceeded that, they would have sold they would have sold the rights off of PBS. They were successful in doing it. Part of that budgeting that they had to do though was they had to film I think they filmed multiple we're talking eight hour shifts where they would like film at least three episodes in a row or something like that and they would have to change things at the last second because of the changing of geography. Geography changes not every day, but it does change regularly. And it would change to the point where they would get a notification and they would have to run out because they had this big world map that was part of the stage and they would have to change countries around based on the changing of the political dynamic. They were doing this during the collapse of the Soviet Union, so... (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And it's actually one of the sad reasons why PBS does not do reruns of where in the world is carmen san diego because it's not accurate the game show is captured in time they're great episodes if you if you could find a youtube i love where in the world is carmen san diego it's just like 
classic 90s game show for kids. I would say on par with Nick Arcade, which we did an episode on earlier. But it is the fact of life that, you know, PBS likes to make sure that what they're putting out there is accurate and and Carmen San Diego those episodes aren't that accurate anymore. <laughs> now, we're going to get into our retro rewind segment where uh Seth provided me the game Alien versus Predator Classic, which is on Steam. On Steam stylized for some reason as Alien versus Predator Classic 2000, which is odd because the game came out in 1999. I think it's because that the version that they are using is based on the gold version, which did come out in 2000. So that might be why it's distinguished. Anyway, this is a first-person shooter developed by Rebellion Developments and published by Fox Interactive. The game is part of the Alien vs. Predator crossover franchise, which itself are is a, is a franchise that's within the Alien and the Predator franchises, which are separate franchises that merge. Now, in the game, you play as either an alien, or a xenomorph if you prefer, a predator, or a colonial marine. I played a bit as an alien, and a bit as a colonial marine. It was fun. I liked the fact that the alien could climb walls, but I did get very motion sick at one point because I went from being like on the ground to on the wall to on the ceiling to falling and landing back on the ground. (laughs) I also, I played a little bit as the colonial marine. I really liked the weapon you get, which is a machine gun. Um, It's very satisfying because when you shoot it, it feels like you're just shredding enemies down. (laughs) So like you get attacked by an alien, you just like plug it a few times and it just like the alien falls apart. It was a fun time. I enjoyed playing it. Um, It definitely has a kind of a 1990 first-person shooter jank, if you would, to it, where it just, it feels like a 1999's first-person shooter, uh, especially one inspired by things like Unreal or Quake, but it's fun. I liked it. The question of does it hold up, though, I think is a little complicated, because if you're like me, who loves classic first-person shooters, yes, you will love it, and I highly recommend it. However, if you're someone who's not super into classic shooters, or if you're not super familiar with them, I would say maybe not play this one right away, and maybe try to play one of the the bigger names, like Unreal or Quake, before you give this one a shot. Just because I think... In my opinion, those are better to get into the retro first-person shooter genre versus just jumping right into Aliens vs. Predators. Again, good game, but I think your mileage may vary, as they say. So, Seth, next week, I want you to play a game for the NES called Master Chu and the Drunkard Who. I'm looking forward to that. For my retro rewind, Zach had me play Warlocked. Uh, it's a RTS for the uh, the Game Boy Color done by Bits Studio and released in North America in 2000. Uh, you play as either humans or beasts, or I guess evil creatures. I, I obviously chose to play as the evil creatures. And you use these goblins to mine mountains for fuel and mine mines for gold. It plays like the original Warcraft, if it was even simpler. You take the original Warcraft, you take away your mouse input and you just have a d-pad and then you just have your a button your b button is essentially your mouse clicks and that's it that's all you get you move your guys around you have to like click on them once you figure out like what everything does it plays all right you like click on your guy and then you like have to click into like a blank square and it's like a grid and uh he will they'll like walk over and reveal the rest of the grid i got to the level where you have to actually fight somebody and the enemy is like next to your base but they don't actually attack you yeah but i was like sending my scouts down and um they attacked my scout because he like wandered in and i I had no idea how to attack them back but 
Uh, yeah, it's a fun game if you only had a Game Boy Color and you wanted to play an RTS. Uh, if those two don't intersect, I I don't know if you should go and seek this game out to play. If you're looking for, like, an RTS game, I don't know if it's going to be, like, the best RTS experience. However, if you're looking to see some more simple RTS games or you need something to play on your analog pocket, maybe, or something like that, you can check out Warlock. It's pretty good. I like it. I think it holds up. Uh, I think it holds up very nichely, though. It's probably one of the better games that Zach has given me so far. And for next week, Zach can play Red to Hero for the Sega Genesis. And I believe... You may or may not need an English translation, but you should get the English translation if possible. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening today. If uh, you want to talk to us all about how much you loved Carmen Sandiego, or if you're curious about anything else Broderbund has done, shoot us an email, classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us via Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, or Twitter. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch are Classic Gaming Brothers. Our Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. We also have a website, classicgamingbrothers.com. Be sure to visit it. You can listen to our podcast wherever podcast can be found and uh that's about it i think i don't have anything else seth do you have anything don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's That's right. right